really one of the things that drives us when we are planning worship services um, first and foremost obviously is the worship of God and to point people to, to Christ uh, but ultimately is to be a community uh, we're not so much trying to drive things by entertainment although we want to try to have things be of good quality but to celebrate the diversity of community and God's church is to be a diverse group of people that come together for one reason and that's because of Jesus Christ and so you see illustrated even in our worship services a lot of diversity because that's who we reflect as a congregation and it's one of our goals not always an easy goal because we have so many differences of opinions and styles and uh, ages and everything else but that is exactly how God has called us to come together um, not so that we all look like clones but that we can celebrate true community in all of our differences. And that is certainly one of our values. But anyway, once again, thank you guys for that song. Now, according to the uh, Old Testament law, if something were to happen in this church, let's just hypothetically, let's say I came here early one Sunday morning and I saw Andrew Baikema in the kitchen stealing the communion juice from the church. Smuggling the communion juice underneath his jacket. Hannah's out there in the car, in the parking lot, waiting with the door open. And Andrew's trying to make a run for it. Get in the car and they can speed up. Now let's say I saw that. And I decided I need to bring this up to the church leadership. This is not good. And so I have the leadership come before me after the service that day and I explained to them exactly what I saw. Now if the church leadership is following Old Testament law, they should have only one question for me at that point. And that is they should look at me and say that sounds very interesting. Steph, um, uh, who else saw Andrew do this? And if I were to say, um, well, well, no one. It was only me. I, I saw Andrew do it. I, I saw him with my own eyes, but there was nobody else in the building at the time. If that's the case, the elders or the leadership should rightly throw out the case right there and then. And I guess if Andrew really did do it, he'd get away with it. According to the Old Testament, it says one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now that law makes perfect sense. It's there to protect people from being falsely accused for something that they never did. Now of course... All laws can be abused. You could find two or three people to conspire with you against someone. That, however, is a little bit harder to do because a court of law or lawyers could separate the witnesses and start to question them and find out if their stories actually line up. And a lot of times in cases like that, you will see that things don't line up. This law is a perfectly natural law. But we also have to remember that no law is perfect. Things can squeak through. Sometimes things happen when only one witness 
does see it. And so criminals can get off, and sometimes innocent people can be wrongly condemned. That's the weakness of the law. It's never perfect. But the safety of this Old Testament law provides us with something that is better than its alternative. And that is the alternative of allowing only one witness to testify against someone. And so to this day, in many countries, including our own, you need more than one witness if you are going to fight something in court. In fact, today, even as I was driving to church, I saw a sign hanging on a light post on the road that said, witness needed for an accident that happened at a particular time. Why do they need a witness? Because you need the testimony of more than one person. Even if something did happen, a witness is needed. In an age of social media, it has become increasingly easy to have extra witnesses to a crime. But let's take the analogy a little bit further. What's, let's say that uh, as I, I talk to the leadership, and I admit to them that I was the only one to see it, and they're about to throw it out. What if I said, well, wait a minute. Now that I think about it, there is one other person that I know of that did see Andrew steal the communion juice from the kitchen. And then the leadership would say, okay, well, that may, might then build a case. So who's your other witness? How do you think the leadership would respond if I said, God? God saw Andrew do it. I saw Andrew do it, and God saw Andrew do it. That's two witnesses. Both God and I saw Andrew steal the communion juice from the kitchen. Now, I'm not sure your leadership here at Bethany would take that as a viable witness. Now, just, just so that you don't get afraid. That does not mean that the leadership here are atheists. They do believe in God, and they even do believe that if Andrew did take the communion juice from the kitchen, they even do believe that God would have saw him. It's just that to use God as my witness is going to be difficult for them to accept because my witness just happens to be invisible. And it's a little bit difficult having and calling an invisible witness to testify on your behalf. It reminds me of uh, something that happened in my first year of Bible college. I had a, a lady uh, by the name of Heidi, not any of the Heidis in this church. I didn't know any of the Heidis from this church at the time. So it was a totally different Heidi. I was my first year of Bible college. This uh, lady by the name of Heidi, she came up to me and she told me that God told her that we were supposed to get married. And I said to her, well, uh, God has not said that to me yet, and if uh, this is true, God's going to have to verify it with me, and I am so thankful to this day that God never did verify it with me. No idea what happened to that Heidi or who she's married to to this day, but maybe if she is consistent with her thinking, she's probably married to the wrong man because she should have married me. Uh, these scenarios, however, are precisely what I found so disturbing with the text that I had to work with this week. Uh, 
forced is not too strong of a word. When I talk about what it was like working on this text this week, forcing my way through it, that's one of the advantages, I guess, to just preaching through a book of the Bible. There's no uh, ability to just skip things that you don't like. You have to deal with everything. And there are some things that you're forced to face. No matter how disturbing, how uncomfortable, or even how incomprehensible those passages are. And today's passage fits that category. It, it, the, the, the things that I would wrestle with in regards to someone coming to me and saying, God said this to me. And how easily I would not believe that. Or what I now had to face in this text today. So we're in John chapter 8, 12 to 20. I'm going to read the passage this morning, and then we're going to work through this particular text. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said to them, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness, because you will have the light that leads to to life. This is the passage that we focused on last week. We spent the whole sermon last week just on this one verse. Jesus proclaiming to the people, I am the light of the world. Now naturally, the Pharisees replied, you are making those claims about yourself and such a testimony isn't valid. Jesus told them, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. And here's where Jesus now appeals to the Old Testament and to the law. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. Well, I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. And now the people ask him, well, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would know also my Father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury, but he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Now, I find this passage of scripture utterly frustrating. First off, we've talked about the repeated audacious claims that Jesus has been making. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the light of the world. Now, I can sympathize greatly with the Pharisees. In fact, truth be told, if I lived in the first century, unless for some kind of intervention from God, I would have been a Pharisee. I, to <clears throat> I totally get them. If someone were going around my neighborhood today, in North Delta, and they were calling community groups together at schools or at social events, and they were standing up, and they were saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I can guarantee it. I would not be bowing down before this person and saying, obviously you are. I totally believe you. You must be. You must be the source of all truth. 
I can also tell you that if somebody were in this church and they were leading a home Bible study, and if I were to catch wind that as they were leading this Bible study, they were telling the people in their Bible study that they were the source of all truth, that they were the light of the world, you can guarantee that I would be shutting down that Bible study. That would be completely unacceptable. I would be the first one to stand against anyone making those kinds of claims. And so I totally understand the Pharisees. I think it's completely reasonable when they come before Jesus and saying, you're making these claims about yourself. Well, such a testimony isn't valid. What right do you have to say that about yourself? There are tons of religious leader, leaders in Jesus' day, even in our day. A couple of weeks ago, I showed you from National Geographic, five people around the world. There are many more, five people around the world who today are claiming to be Jesus. So, what makes your testimony valid? Just because you say so? There are many self-proclaimed saviors. Just as, do a little bit of YouTube searching, there are many people who claim to be mermaids. There are people who claim to be elves. There are people who claim to be aliens. Is it true just because they say so? Where's your proof? I want you to validate this. There's nothing wrong with healthy skepticism. If we don't have healthy skepticism, we will fall for anything. Or anyone. And so Jesus tells them, well, these claims are valid. Even though I make them about myself. Now, technically, Jesus is correct. Jesus could be the truth. Even though nobody else is a witness to this, even though he has nobody else to back him up, he technically could be telling the truth. When I come before the elders and I tell the elders or the leadership that Andrew was stealing communion juice from the kitchen, even though I have no other witnesses, I could be telling the truth. There's no other way to validate it, but it still could be true. So Jesus is right. These claims are valid, even though I make them about myself. He's correct in the fact that they could be valid. Evidence doesn't make something true. Evidence simply validates it being true. So something could be true even if we have no evidence for it. Unless, of course, the evidence completely contradicts it. If I were once again before the leadership and I were to make my claims about Andrew stealing communion juice from the kitchen and the leadership were to say to me, uh, Steph, we have not been storing communion juice in the kitchen for the last three years. Then I would be in trouble. Because now the evidence goes against me. But if there's no evidence one way or the other, we can't know if it really is true. But it could be. For sure it could be. So Jesus is correct in saying, even if there is no evidence, it could be true that I am the truth. Now, that, however, is little help to those of us who are searching for the truth. If, if that's all we can go on, that Jesus is claiming to be the truth, he could be the truth, uh, but we don't 
have anything to validate it, but he could be right, then it seems like it's just a lottery. We've got thousands of unprovable claims out there. Some of them could be true. We've got hundreds of unprovable claims of people claiming to be the Messiah. One of them could possibly be true. So I guess what we do is we, we put our money on who we think is the best bet. And so we're going with Jesus. And I guess when the end comes and the slot machine is pulled, we just hope the Jesus number comes up and we're right because if, it's, if we're not right, well then, too bad for us. Hopefully, we have more of a reason to believe in Jesus over other people than that. That we're just crossing our fingers and hoping that he is right, taking Jesus at his word, not taking other people at his word for no other reason than... Well, this is the tradition we grew up in, and so we're just going to place our bets on Jesus. And so here's where I find, then, Jesus' claims so irritating. When pushed and, and asked, you cannot be your own witness. If, if something is to be true, we need more than one witness. So who else are you going to bring to court? To testify on your behalf. And Jesus says, okay, well, I'm not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. I am one witness. And my Father who sent me is the other. Now, Jesus is not talking about Joseph here. As we see from the passage as follows, he is speaking about God. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, you would know my Father. Now here's what I find so frustrating with this. Two problems, there's more, but two main problems, is first, my first objection is what I call the God card. Jesus pulling the God card. It, it, it just, it, 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 to me, it's not, Valid. How do you prove that? I would hope that if I were to come before you as your pastor and I were to say, guess what, everybody? We need to move. We are going to sell this building and we are going to relocate in some other location. And a lot of you would say, well, I don't think that's a good idea. Some would say that is a good idea and we'd have a healthy debate. But then I say, wait, 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 wait. There's no reason to debate this. God told me we are supposed to do this. Now, what are you going to say? That is completely unfair. You can't pull the God card. Because now, how do you disagree with me? Either you got to say that I am a little bit loopy and I wasn't hearing from God. Or, if you're against it, you got to argue against God. It's not fair to pull the God card. And, and, and how do you prove it? How do you prove if God really did tell me this or not? And so how does it help Jesus' case when they say to Jesus, what proof do you have to say that you are the light of the world? What help is it for Jesus to say, well, I claim it, that's one witness, and God in heaven also believes that. It just seems to be such a weak argument. It's like me, again, calling on God against Andrew. Well, God saw Andrew do it, as well as me. God told me so. 
The other problem I find with Jesus' argument is that it is circular. The Pharisees are asking Jesus, who can vouch for his validity? And Jesus says that he validates God. Who validates Jesus. So if you don't trust Jesus in the first place, why would you trust the God that Jesus validates, who then validates Jesus, who then validates God, who then validates Jesus? It's a circle. I'm on God's side and God's on my side because I'm on God's side because he's on my side. That's my proof. And why should we believe this? Because God's on my side. Why should we believe that God's on your side? Because I am validating that God's on my side. That's what the argument's like. I think that many of the Pharisees probably lost their hair like me. It's very difficult. We have to have some sympathy for them trying to listen and comprehend this man making these crazy statements. Clearly, Jesus is either talking at such a high level about the nature of God uh, in which we cannot possibly understand, or he is talking in incomprehensible circles. Which one is it? And then Jesus throws this at them. I know where I came from and where I am going. But you don't know this about me because you judge by human standards. Now, when I read this passage this week, I, I did a, a bit of a self-check. I, um, I felt my skin. I thought a few thoughts. I actually, not because of this passage, but for some other reasons, I actually went for some blood work this week as well. And when I began to put all the, the, the data together, guess what I discovered this week? I'm a human. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm a human being. And so when I read this, and Jesus says, as if if to condemn me, you don't get this because you're judging by human standards. I'm thinking, but that's because I'm a human. How else am I supposed to judge things? I cannot look at this from the perspective of my cat. I cannot look at this from the perspective of a giraffe. I cannot look at this from a perspective of an angel. And of course, I cannot possibly look at this scenario between you and the Father from God's perspective. The only perspective I can look at this from is from a human perspective. So what are you expecting of me? And that is precisely where I got stuck in my sermon writing. Sometimes I just sort of write my messages as they're unfolding in my mind, and and I I got stuck right at that point, and I I wrote myself into a sermon corner. And then I was like, oh man, what am I supposed to do with this? And I was sitting in front of my desk, in front of my computer, and I I had my head down like this, and I was just straining my brain, trying to figure out what to do all all of this. And then uh, Pastor Kelly, our new youth pastor, she came walking down the hallway right during this time and she looked into the office and she looked at my face and she was trying to figure out whether I was distressed or constipated because of the the agony that I was under and then she said Steph what's going on and I just I, I told her about my dilemma and I said I'm working with this passage of scripture and I just don't get it because the the, the Pharisees the religious leaders they're asking Jesus these questions and they're asking Jesus to prove the, the crazy statements that he's making. And the, the answers that Jesus is giving just aren't satisfying me. 
I mean, I've heard of a lot of different religious leaders make the exact same claims as Jesus made. So why should I believe Jesus? Just because he says so? And as we were chatting, uh, Kelly uh, just started talking to me about some of the stuff that the youth are learning in Sunday school. And one of the things that the youth are doing in Sunday school right now is they're talking about evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Great sermon or, or Sunday school series that they are uh, working through. And she's working through what is the evidence behind whether or not Jesus actually rose in history. Things like, how do you explain the birth of the early church? How, how do you explain that there was no church and then all of a sudden this church just, just birthed? Did it all birth because some guy died on a cross? Hundreds of people, thousands of people died on a cross. How do you explain that some of the earliest church fathers, like James and Paul, were completely antagonistic towards the Christian faith and all of a sudden did a 180 degree turn and now we're following it. Why would they do that? Things like, how do you explain that so many of the earliest disciples and eyewitnesses all died as martyrs? Testifying and proclaiming to be eyewitnesses to a Jesus who did not just die, but also rose from the dead. How do you explain the fact that still to this day, 2,000 years later, you have thousands of people that claim to have experienced Jesus in a very personal way? If he is dead, how do you explain that even scores of Muslims have claimed to have met Jesus in a dream and have converted to Christianity because of Jesus coming to them if he's again a dead person? So all of these things seem to add up to one thing. As weird as it might be, as unscientific as it might be to fit our paradigms of how things always work, something happened in history that goes against all the normal ways of how things work, and that is that a guy named Jesus died on a cross and then actually rose from the dead. This is why this stuff is so important. All the Gospels, like John, the one that we're studying, were written decades after Jesus rose. And so, what we need to understand is we are reading texts in the Bible of people writing in light of the resurrection. They are reflecting back now onto Jesus' life and the things that he said, the things that made them scratch their head, the confusion of it all. But now they are writing about it after the resurrection. It's why in John, for instance, we have in several places throughout the gospel statements like this. After Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. And they believe both the scripture and what Jesus said. See how important that is? We need to recognize that if we would have lived during the time of Jesus prior to his resurrection, we would have been as confused as the Pharisees and even as Jesus' disciples. After he fed 5,000, we hear about many leaving them. After even Jesus' own 12 disciples, we find them... One moment saying, I think you are the Christ. And then the very next moment, them getting it totally wrong. And Jesus having to say, get behind me, Satan, to his own disciples. 
See, all of this different stuff that happened in Jesus' life didn't really make sense until the resurrection. That's why the resurrection is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. If the resurrection never happened, you would be wise to walk away from it all. Find another faith. The resurrection has to be fact. And has to have more than one witness to it. That is why Jesus' resurrection and after the resurrection is when all the light bulbs started going on. These kinds of speeches that Jesus made started to make sense. Paul says the same thing. Opening his letter to the Romans, he writes, The good news is about God's Son. He was shown to be God's Son when he was raised from the dead. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he is Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? When Jesus said, the Father who is in heaven also testifies on my behalf. Jesus was speaking into the near future. He wasn't so much saying to the Pharisees standing before him right there, the Father whom is invisible, who you can't see, is claiming me as valid as your Savior. And you're just supposed to believe it. You're just supposed to take my word for it. He was not saying that. What Jesus was doing is planting the seeds and preparing the hearts and the minds of the people so that when God raised Jesus from the dead, that's when God validated Jesus. See, Christianity is not based on some internal mystical experience. I believe it because it feels true. It's based on reliable, objective, historical fact. It is a faith that is based on truth and reason and history and fact. It's why Paul also, when he preached to the crowd at Athens, said, God has set a day of judging the world with justice by the man Jesus he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Again and again throughout the Gospels, whenever Paul goes into the synagogues or when Paul goes to Athens with the philosophers there at Athens, the book of Acts says repeatedly, Paul proved, Paul argued, Paul debated, Paul showed evidence for why he believed what he believed. It's why John who wrote this gospel, also writing 1 John, says in the very beginning, we testify to you things which we have heard, things which we have seen with our eyes, and things which our hands have touched. It's why Peter, writing in his letter, says, we are not telling you cleverly invented fairy tales, but things that happened before our very eyes. It's why we need to be careful 
to not base why we believe in Christianity because he tells me in my heart. I tell you why I know I believe. I know within my heart. I know many Mormons who believe what they believe in their heart. I know many people from the Unificationist Church that know why they believe in their heart. They'll even give you very elaborate emotional testimonies of how they converted from atheism or communism into the faith that they are now in because of a pulling upon their heart. There, there's thousands of testimonies like that in many different religions. There's nothing unique about those testimonies. What is important for Christians is that it is not just experiential, that's part of it, but it's also objective outside of our experience. It's something that happened in actual history. Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did, that was God saying, this is my son. No one else can make that claim. No one else, no other religious founder has come back from the dead. That's why Jesus can say, I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is my other witness. Because he will validate it in raising me from the dead. God verified, God was the second witness when he raised Jesus from the dead. No other self-proclaimed Messiah can say that about themselves. And that's why Paul said, and what I said earlier, if it's not true, throw it out. That's why Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless. Paul was very reasonable. Paul didn't say, you know what, if it was actually proved that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I would still be a Christian because, you know, it's kind of just good for me. It's good for morality, it's good for society, it's good. That's not what Paul says. Paul says if Christ has not been raised, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. It's futile to be, he goes on in the same thing. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty for your sins. If Jesus' bones and body were actually dug up and was actually proved that he never really rose from the dead, Paul is saying there's no point in continuing on with Christianity because your sins aren't forgiven, you're still in your sins, and your faith is useless. You might as well believe in genies and mermaids and elves. It's useless. There was no room in Paul's understanding to follow Jesus just because Jesus was a nice guy and said really neat things. In fact, as we've been saying over the last few weeks, the kinds of things that Jesus actually said are the things that got him killed because he said such crazy, audacious things, like I am the light, I am the bread of life, and all these other things like that, that he either was a psychopath, an egomaniac, or he was a man with a demon, or a liar, or he was the truth. How do we know he was the last and not all the others? Because God raised him from the dead. If Jesus would have said all the things that he said in his lifetime, and then died, and that's it, it would have proved him a liar. It would have proved him just one other false messiah. 
But there was that resurrection thing. It's why, really, in the church calendar, Easter is a bigger deal than Christmas. Now, truthfully, they're all big deals because you can't have Easter without Christmas. They're all big deals. But Easter is the foundation of our faith. Because Christ rose, your sins are forgiven. Victory over the devil has been won. You, too, will rise from the dead because he's proven greater than death. And with all the competing religions and ideologies out there which confuse people, how do I possibly know which one? The resurrection was God validating Jesus as the right one. This is why I think the material that Pastor Kelly is covering with the youth is absolutely foundational to our faith. We need to know this. Christianity is unique in that we believe that our founder is alive. And we believe he's alive on more than just wishing that he's alive. We believe that he's alive because there is good evidence to the fact that he is alive. Christianity is verified by the resurrection. And so if I stood before the church leadership and accused Andrew of stealing the communion juice from the kitchen and my only other witness to prove it was God, then I guess the leadership would have the right to say to me, okay, we'll believe you when you rise from the dead. If God can verify that he's with you by raising you from the dead, then we will look into this Andrew situation thing. But you see, there's one problem with that. And that is, unless I am the Messiah, who can interrupt God's timetable, my resurrection is going to happen the same time as all of yours. And that is, my resurrection is going to happen when Jesus comes back again. Which makes the whole communion juice thing kind of a moot point. See, for only Jesus' resurrection happened in the middle of time. Only Jesus' resurrection interrupted the flow of history. It did so to verify Jesus as the Messiah over sin and death. For the rest of us, we wait till he comes back again. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who died. Jesus is the first one. None of those Old Testament saints raised from the dead. Jesus is the first one to raise from the dead. And then it says there is an order to the resurrection. We sometimes get the chronological order of God's things mixed up and Paul lays it out very clearly there's an order to this resurrection Christ was raised as the first of the harvest then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back God verified Christ Jesus as his Messiah by raising him from the dead 
all of us who are in Christ will be verified by God as his true children when Jesus comes back again, whenever that day is, and the trumpet sounds and the graves open. And we are raised with the one who conquered death to be with him for all of eternity. It is because of the resurrection that Jesus can say, I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. When reading the Gospels, we need to understand that we need to read them with the resurrection in mind. We read the Gospels and we interpret the Gospels in light of the fact that we know how it ends. That these statements about the Father and I are one, these statements about destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. All of these statements which seem crazy when Jesus said it made sense at the resurrection. Ah, the temple he was talking about wasn't this structure here. It was his body. Ah, he is one with the father because his father verified it by raising him from the dead. That's never happened to anyone before. No other religious leader can ever make the claim by the simple fact that no other religious leader has ever been verified by God by being raised from the dead. That is why only Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, the life. Only Jesus can say, I am the bread, I am the water, I am the light. All other claims by anybody else to say those things about themselves is demonic. Only Jesus has been verified as able to say that about himself because he's the truth whom God has proved to the world by raising him from the dead. And only because God verified Jesus in his resurrection do we, his followers, bow before him and no other. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to die and to rise. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you did not leave us guessing for the truth. You did not leave us to the subjectivity of our feelings of knowing what's right. We thank you so much, God, that you verified for all of humanity the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ by something that happened in time and space and history. We thank you, Lord, for showing us the truth by raising Jesus from the dead. And we pray, God, that we will be your witnesses to the world by looking into the evidence for the resurrection so that we too can proclaim to others why we believe and why there's reasons to believe. We also, Lord, wait in anticipation for the day when you will come back again and you will make everything right. You will create a new heavens and a new earth and we will be raised with you 
to live for all of eternity in a world that is right and just and governed by you. Amen.